And please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 40. We continue now our exposition of Luke's Gospel. Uh, Last time we saw our Lord Jesus Christ cast out uh, thousands of demons from the demoniac. And so we pick up our uh, narrative there in verse 40. And so please turn there in your copy of God's Word and give your attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word. These are the very words of God Almighty, holy, inspired, and infallible. Let us hear them in that way. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had only one daughter, one only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stanched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith had made thee whole, go in peace. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straight away, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we adore our Lord Jesus Christ as we see him with compassion and power to care for the most tender of his lambs and to care for our concerns and our troubles, telling us, fear not, only believe. And so as we come to our Savior's words now, we pray for the preaching that you would pour out your blessings on the preached word, that your spirit would be upon the minister, that he would preach faithfully and in the power of the Holy Ghost, and that the hearts who will hear this word would have their hearts opened to the power 
and blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that if any here do not believe, that they would behold the Savior and come and flee to Christ and take hold of him, even as the woman with the issue of blood grabbed a hold of him. Father, we pray then that for the glory of Jesus Christ, you would bless the preached word. Glorify thy son, Jesus, we pray, that thy son also may glorify thee. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, the way that the Lord often brings providences together continues to astound me, especially if we're sensitive to it. I thought on our recent sermon texts, uh, not by my design, but by his, and how they converge in this text today. You remember last week in Psalm 110, we considered the mediatorial dominion of Jesus Christ, how as the God-man, he rules and reigns over all providences and all things. And you remember in that sermon, we considered 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26. And what did we hear of our Savior? For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Death. Death. And here we find a token of that. That Christ has power over death. And we have the foretaste that he will utterly conquer death when he returns in glory. But in our text today, what we want to see is the truth, right? That Jesus in himself, all in himself, in his own person, has mastery over death. No man has mastery and power over death. You know, you think of our society, right? We are trying, trying with some measure of futility to delay death. We try to push it off, right? As far as we can push it off with medicine. But ultimately, no man has total power over death. All we can do is delay it. But Jesus, Jesus actually has power over death. And he can reverse death. And he has mastery over it. And that's what we see in our text. And the other recent providence, which was unanticipated, was my preaching on John 11 about two Lord's Days ago, which was completely sort of an emergency sermon, in a sense. You remember there, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, and I think if you're keen and you're paying attention, there are many parallels here between John 11 and our text today. And having that fresh upon your minds will cause it to be uh, easier to receive in the preaching of the Word, and a great help to you today. And so I won't go into John 11 in detail, but I'll, I'll cause you to, uh, I'll hearken back to it in the preaching of the Word. Well, this text that is before us, really, and we must, as John 11, use this text in this way, it makes you anticipate the day of the resurrection. That's really what it does. You know, too, too few of us look to that day, and I'm going to cover that, especially in our affliction. Too few of us look to the resurrection. But if you look at the New Testament, that's where the hope of the gospel is found, ultimately is in the resurrection. That's why we're here worshiping on the first day of the week, isn't it? The resurrection day, it's the day of hope for the Christian and the believer. And so we come to see here an anticipation of the resurrection because in this life, and you are more keenly aware of it later, and boys and girls, God willing, one day you will be too as you age. Our outer man is perishing even as our inner man is being renewed. And one day our body will be in the grave with our soul with Christ above. But one day he is going to make us whole again as he made this girl whole 
When Jesus one day will speak to our bodies in the grave and he said to this young lady, Arise! And one day all that are in the grave will hear his voice saying, Arise! And we will be made whole on that great day of the resurrection. And our bodies will be transformed into a glorious body like his and we will ever be the Lord's. And that's what this text is pointing to. And really, and I want you to think about this as he says that this girl will be made whole. Then, for the first time in all of our existence on the day of the resurrection, will we truly be made whole in perfect blessedness. And that's what we anticipate. That day that is coming when we will be finally and utterly made whole and enter the eternal state. This is a text that makes us anticipate, right? In our misery, what did what was the thing? I'll cover this a bit later, but maybe I'll bring it now just for us. When in his misery, what was the only thing Job could really cling to? I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. You see, in affliction, where could Job go? He goes to the resurrection day. And that's where we must too. And yet for too few of us is the resurrection day front and center, even though we meet on the first day of the week every week. But with all that, I've gone a bit long in the intro here. Our theme is that Jesus' power over death will make us whole in the resurrection. Jesus' power over death will make us whole in the resurrection, and we are to believe on that truth. And we'll have three heads as they are on your outline. First is a request, second is the response, and third is the resurrection. First, request. Well, to regain our context, after Jesus had cast out the demons out of that tormented demoniac, you remember he sent the demons into the 2,000 swine that were drowned You remember that the people of the Gadarenes, they begged Jesus to leave. You remember that? Verse 37, Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them. I just want to go back to that for a moment before we look at uh, Capernaum. Have you ever thought on how terrible it is for a land to tell the Lord Jesus Christ to go away? To depart, we don't want anything to do with you. You think about what a nation is doing when they say, Jesus, you're not welcome in our schools. Jesus, you're not welcome in the halls of government. And that's what, as a whole, our land has done, isn't it? Saying, besought Jesus, go away. There's no room for you in front of the courthouse. There's no room for the Ten Commandments in your law, Jesus. What happens? We embrace darkness and not light. We embrace death and not life. We embrace hell and not heaven. Think of the gatherings again. And I couldn't, my mind was almost seized with the thought that they were content when Satan was active in their land. They were just fine when Satan was, was just able to be uh, all and out in this man's body. They were fine with that. But how they despised Jesus Christ. What a portrait that is of where we are as a people today, friends. Embracing Satan and death and misery, despising Jesus and blessedness. 
Will a land like the Gadarenes be filled with blessedness or find blessedness in rejecting Jesus and embracing Satan? By no means. Yet here we are now on the other side of the lake in Capernaum. And we read as we pick up our text in verse 40. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, what do we read? The people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. What a difference I thought on that, right? This is what our churches ought to be like. This is what our homes ought to be like. This is what our secret place, the closet ought to be like. And one day what our nation ought to be like as well. Waiting on Jesus in prayer and anticipation and glad to receive him. Look at what happened, right? You look at the contrast between the Gadarenes and Capernaum. What happened when Jesus comes back to Capernaum? Conversions, lively faith, the dead raised to life, healing. You have light and you have life. And you almost can sense the desolation of the Gadarenes compared to the rich blessings of Capernaum. What was the one thing that made the difference? It was Jesus. And the people were glad to have him and they waited on him. That ought to spur us on in our gospel labors, ought not friends, right? That Jesus might turn the hearts of our people to him. And we are to wait on him and be glad when he does arrive. Well, with that said, as we come into this narrative, we find that the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have this narrative almost intact, complete like it is, and they structure it, in fact, in the very same way. We have the man Jairus, he comes pleading with the Lord for his daughter, and on the way to his home, the woman with the issue of blood interrupts this narrative, and it interrupts this this, uh, going of the Lord to Jairus' daughter to heal her. Now, to set expectations that you might not ask, why have I skipped over the narrative with the woman with the issue of blood, I plan to preach on her next time so that we can keep our focus with Jairus and his daughter and her being raised to life. And so I'll leave that there for you so you might know what I'm doing. But there is going to be a point where we consider the woman uh, rather briefly. So in verses 41 and 42, let's now pick up with Jairus. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had uh, one only daughter about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. So here we meet the man, Jairus. He's a ruler of the local synagogue. Uh, Rulers of the synagogue there and then were very akin to the ruling elders we have in the church today. Um, He was in the government of the synagogue, and he was a religious man, clearly. What his life was like before this point that we uh, learn of him, we cannot really say. There's nothing else in the scripture to really speak of that. What he thought about Jesus, we don't know. Was he hostile to Jesus before his fame began, as his fame began to spread? We don't know. Was he curious about Jesus? We're not sure. What is it, though, that brings the man to Jesus Christ? That's important. Well, he had only one daughter, 12 years old, and she lay dying. What you find here is a man who is desperate, don't you? Uh, really at the end of his rope. That's what brings him to Jesus. He has a great and desperate need. The Holy Ghost gives her age to us. Twelve years old, why is that? Well, it, um, at twelve, Jewish girls had just made the transition to womanhood. 
right? And at 13, Jewish boys would make the transition to manhood. Uh, young people in that, uh, and this is a little bit of an aside, as I said last week, that shows you how to interpret 1 Corinthians 13.11. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What does Paul have in mind there? A 13-year-old man, a 12-year-old girl, doesn't he? And that should really convict a lot of us here about where manhood and womanhood is seen in the Scripture. Well, that said, think now, on Jairus, and we really have to get ourselves into the mind of the man in a way. He has his only daughter's life slipping away. And I don't think I have to explain this, but we need to bring it back to our remembrance. By nature, you know the bond fathers often feel for their girls. It's immense, especially their only daughter. That's why so often, right, we look on a girl and we might say, there's a daddy's girl, right? Because she loves her father so. Because her father usually shows great affection for her. They have a tremendous bond. Uh, I remember that uh, uh, one of our previous presidents, he had written saying something like, the, the, really the beauty of, a, a, of a, having a daughter is it's like seeing your wife grow up. And there's a great affection that men have for their daughters. And here at the cusp of womanhood, All those years that Jairus cherished, even his joy at receiving her on the day of her birth. And you think of this, he must have praised God, God has blessed me with a girl. You think of the future happiness that he had imagined for her, he had prayed for, her wedding day, children of her own. All of that was slipping away for the man, even as his daughter was slipping away from him. If you've ever had a child on the verge of death or have lost a child, you know the man's desperation what he must have felt at this time. And you know, Jairus here, he appears to be a man of means. He certainly called the physicians of his day. We'll see that with the woman who had the issue of blood. Next time she had come to all the physicians she could, she spent all her money on it. And and Jairus certainly must have. He cherished his daughter and done the same. But they too could do nothing. And his only daughter, his one daughter, continued to slip away from life. Now, I don't know what Jairus thought of Jesus before all this happened. But like many of us, what I just want to put before you is until our need for Jesus is pressed upon us, when we see him as our only possible hope, we are content to stay away from Christ until he draws us to himself. And so what you have to see here as the master of providence, the Lord has orchestrated this great difficulty in Jairus' life to dispatch him to himself so that through his grief, And through this desperation, Jairus might receive eternal life himself. And so the man seeks out Jesus. And you notice when he comes to him, he falls at his feet. He worships. That's what that is. He worships the Lord after finding no one else to turn to. Out of faith, he comes and casts himself at the feet of Jesus Christ. And in Matthew and Mark's accounting, you, you see that this man had faith in the Lord, that he believed that Jesus had the ability to heal his daughter. In Mark 5.23, he says to Jesus, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee. In other words, I beg Come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed. And listen to this. And she shall live. The man knows that Jesus Christ, if he would come and lay his hands on her, she shall live. That's faith, friends. 
Faith in Jesus that he can do what he has promised he can do. Like Jairus, though, I'll come back to this point as we consider ourselves. Men must have a sense of their need for Jesus Christ. And they must also have faith that he can save them. Men will not come to Jesus until they know both those things. They must be pressed in the preaching, and you must be pressed in the preaching of the word, and even our ordinary witness as we considered the former demoniac last time, that they, that all men need Christ, and that he alone can save them from their sins. And I press you a little further. You need Jesus, and you must be pressed to that place where you only can see Jesus Christ is the only way of hope and salvation for me. You have a dire need, and let me put this before you, for the Savior. You will die. Each and every one of you are going to die. Have you forgotten that? Because our society has caused you to push that thought deep down and away. And what's going to happen on the day you die? You will meet God. And you will meet God up close, and you will meet Him personal. And what will you do? You will see His pure, radiant, holy light piercing into the very darkest and deepest recesses of your soul. And you are going to admit before God that you are unclean, that you are a sinner, and that compared to His holy radiance, you are like a tiny black blot speck of uncleanness, death, and damnation. You will see your hatred and your evil in your heart compared to his pure, holy love and light and righteousness. And your own mouth will say, I am unclean as the lepers of old, as his holy radiance is like a fire burning away your impurities. And he will cast you into eternal damnation for your sin and uncleanness. Friend, there is only condemnation for you outside of Jesus Christ. And until you sense, as so many of us have, your desperate inability to save yourself, much, much worse than Jairus' inability to save his daughter, is our inability to save ourselves. You will not come to Jesus that you might have life and blessedness. You need to see your desperate condition, friend. And you need to come to Jesus that you might have eternal life and blessedness. See your desperation and come to the Savior. Receive him. Believe on him. Fall at his feet in worship as Jairus did. And some of us, and I want to deal with this as well, some of us fear that as sinners, Jesus would have nothing to do with us. Say, yes, I I do see that I am a great sinner, but I am such a sinner that Jesus would have nothing to do with me. Maybe Jairus can touch his feet. I certainly can. But have you not seen through the pages of Scripture that none who come to him are ever, ever turned away? His promise is that those who would come to him, he will in no wise cast out in John 6. Do you not remember earlier in Luke, if you're with us, the leper that came to Jesus for healing? Remember, he knew that Jesus had the power to heal him, but his turmoil, his question was, is Jesus willing? What were his words in Luke 5.12? He says to the Savior, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. What did Jesus say? Have you forgotten so quickly, child of God? I will 
meaning I am willing. Be thou clean. He is willing, friends, to cure you of your evil if you would just come to him. He is willing, he says, be clean, receive me. And so if you would see these three things every day, child of God, even if you are a believer, that Jesus is your only hope, that Jesus has the power to save and sanctify you, and that Jesus is willing, you would ever be at his feet, always. There is nothing that would keep you from the Savior's feet. So you need to know your need, know his power, and know his willingness, and you would fall at his feet day by day. And so Jairus brings this worshipful request, and let us consider in our next heading, Jesus' response. Well, you see here, just as he was with the leper, Jesus was willing to help Jairus, and he goes with Jairus back to his home. But as the crowd throngs him, and that's what happens, the multitudes come. Remember, they're not like the Gadarenes. Here uh, in Capernaum, they want Christ. And the crowd throngs him as we should. And the woman with the issue of blood meets him and causes, uh, and she, she grabs a hold of him. And that causes here a bit of a delay, doesn't it? And you think on this. We don't know for sure, but I think this is certainly something to ponder. It just might be this delay that gives enough time for Jairus' daughter to die before Jesus could arrive. In verse 29, while he yet spake to the woman, there cometh, so he's talking to her, and if you remember the narrative as we read it, right, he's dealing with the crowd and he's talking to them and his disciples and, and then to uh, this woman. And so there's a, a bunch of stuff happening here. It's not an immediate thing. So he's still speaking to the woman. There cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. Now I suppose you might have received news that can come to you as sort of a body blow, right? And it's like your whole world is gone and gone upside down. And it's as though all the air is taken out of your lungs. And certainly uh, the world seems to disappear in your shock and in your grief. And this must have been the way that Jairus had to respond to this news. And I think on this, and it's almost like he had his hopes kindled for a moment as well. Here is Jesus. He's going to come. My daughter is going to live. I have the Savior with me. And then she dies. And you have to wonder what a blow that was to him, right? Maybe, and you think on this, I don't know, but maybe, and several do, maybe he even grumbled at providence, if only that woman hadn't touched Jesus. If only there wasn't a crowd around him. If only he had made a beeline to my house. If only he wasn't distracted. Then maybe my daughter would be alive now. And sometimes we even sinfully go further than that. It's sort of like, why couldn't Jesus have rushed to her? Why couldn't he have run to her? Why did he turn around to even ask the woman the question, who touched me? Did it matter when my daughter is about to die? Don't be so pious as to think you wouldn't ask such questions yourself, friends. I remembered another pious, godly minister, the Southern Presbyterian minister, Thornwell. You might know his great grief when his daughter, Nancy, was dying right just before her wedding day. She had contracted illness and was wasting away dying. His grief was that he had planned for a wedding. Now he had to plan for a funeral. And he was grieved that he couldn't give his daughter away to her groom and would have to lay her in the tomb. 
And here he is at her bedside and he exclaims to her, daughter, what a tragedy. Do you remember what her words were? Father, but I now go to a greater groom I am prepared to meet. She passed away and she was buried in her wedding gown. I saw her tombstone last year and inscribed on it were the blessed words from the revelation as a bride prepared for her groom. That is faith, friends. That is faith in the resurrection to come and in Jesus Christ, her bridegroom. For faith like that maiden had, friends, to have such faith, faith that seemed stronger at death's door than her father's, the preacher, whose faith flickered a bit in his great grief. That said, all that said, the thing is, we are often, too often, in the habit of second-guessing Christ's timing and his plans, aren't we? You see, Jesus had a purpose in not attending to the girl before she died. In fact, he had planned this whole thing so that she would die. As God, he had orchestrated it, just as he did in John 11, right? Remember, there you got into the mind of the Savior, where he purposed to delay so that Lazarus would die. Why? There was a greater, more blessed purpose, wasn't there? That his disciples might believe and see his power and that they might know his ability and power to raise the dead and that they would believe that he is the Savior. Well, and as Jairus' daughter passed away, Jairus' servant told him, trouble not the master. Now, I think there's a couple things here you can take note of. First is that the servant did not know the extent of Jesus' power, did he? He's basically saying, Jesus can't do any more. Don't trouble him anymore. And he didn't know the power of Christ, that Christ couldn't just heal the living, but that Christ had the power to raise the dead. And that if Christ were willing, he would go and bring life back to this dead girl's body. Maybe Jairus didn't know it either. But Jesus has the power over death. But let me say this first, friends. When he says, trouble not the master, he's wrong in that too. Jesus is never troubled by his people and their griefs and their cares. In fact, he's ever ready to ease your trouble, isn't he? He says, let your heart not be troubled so often. He says, fear not. And you hear and you see here that Jesus did ease Jairus' trouble. Jairus was afraid. We don't know too much about the man's heart at this time or his thinking, but we know that he was losing hope when his daughter died. Why? Because Jesus says to him, fear not, believe only. Fear not, believe only. The man was racked with grief. He was afraid he had lost her forever. But what does Jesus say? He says, exercise faith in me. Right? Where does the Savior always point us to in our grief? Believe on me. Look to me. Trust me. And that's where you will find your comfort, friends. Faith in Jesus. Trusting in Him. Whatever happens is where fear is banished. Going back to Job, when Job was struck inconsolable. Uh, no, actually, let me ask it. Was Job struck inconsolable when he lost all his children? when he lost his health, when he lost all his goods, when he lost everything in his life seemingly. No. Why? Because he could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. 
Jesus likewise says, fear not whatever your fears are, believe only. And the word believe here is the word for faith, which is based on the word trust. Trust. What did Job say? Yet will I trust in him. It's the same word, friends. Is this not the stuff of faith? Trusting Jesus, not just for salvation, but for everything, for everything. That's what we have to do, exercise trust, that your life and the life of all, our friends, our family, the nation, the church, all is in his hands. To dispose of as is best and wisest and most loving come what may. And do you see Jesus' kindness and compassion to Jairus here? He saw the man's fears. And what did he not say, as so many of us might say? He doesn't say, buck up. He doesn't say, keep a stiff upper lip. But in compassion, he says, fear not, trust me. That's your kind Savior, beloved. And so that's where comfort is found in our affliction. I was reminded of the Heidelberg, as I'm often reminded. What is thy only Know the word, only comfort in life and in death. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And on it goes, doesn't it? What is your only comfort? You notice they put the word only there. There's only one comfort, which is trusting in the Lord in life and in death. So who do you trust, friends? Is it Jesus Christ? Will you trust him? Would you trust him? Even if he slew you, saying, even this is for the best. Even if he says, I will take your only son, as he told Abraham, or I will take your only daughter, will you still trust him that that is best and right? That's the only way you can get through life. Storms, isn't it? And I will just ask this. If not this Jesus... Who else can you trust? Who else? You've got to trust someone. You've got to trust something. And if it's not this Jesus, who are you trusting in? Is anyone worthy of such trust as the Savior? No. Well, I want to have a bit of an aside theologically. Some might ask, why did this young girl die? Why would God take, and here's the words, an innocent child like this? Why does God send death even to our little ones? You know, even Thornwell, who knew the Bible's theology probably better than I do, he said, oh, my dear daughter, such tragedy. He said tragedy. And that's what caused her to console him of her future with Jesus. But do you know the reason? Do you know the answer to the question? Why has death come into the world even to little children? The answer is simple, it's sin. Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. When Adam sinned, death entered the world. That's when death entered the world, not before. And death passed upon all men. So what you have to see is, you have to see this rightly, Death is our reward for sin. And it's a just penalty. The wages of sin is death. That is what, uh, well, you think about this just in plain terms. What is, even in this country, the penalty for treason? 
death. How much more so is the penalty for treason against the Almighty by way of sin? Death is the right reward. And every death in this world, then, is God uh, proclaiming that all men are sinners, even the youngest child. In Adam, all humans born of natural generation are sinners. Adam's sin imputed to us. Romans 5, 13 through 14. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. See, we are conceived as sinners. Adam's sin is imputed to us so that uh, we are guilty of our first father's sin, even from the womb. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Have you ever asked the question, God fears, why do babies die in the womb? It's because of sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. That is the doctrine of original sin. Adam's guilt is our guilt. And corrupted by sin from conception, we commit sins. I was just talking to my children in family worship about this, that um, naturally we have to teach our children not to be selfish, right? And to share and all those things. Why? Because they come out of the womb, selfish. They come out of the womb, sinners. And if you've ever had a child, maybe you've never thought on that before, but you certainly see it when you understand the Bible, that my children are sinners. And because of this, all men are liable to death. Death is our due reward. And that is why Jairus' daughter died. You have to remove the idea that Jairus' daughter was innocent. There is none innocent. And even the youngest baby, right? And you might say, how cute and such. You know, better men have said than this. If that child could kill you when they are, uh, when they are upset, they will. They would. If they had the power, if an infant had the power of a 20-year-old man, he would strangle you when he doesn't get his way. He would do whatever it took to get a hold of what he wants. That is sin in our heart. And we thank the Lord for his design and how children are raised. Well, in this text, though, Jesus is our hope. He came to undo Adam's disobedience. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, and who is that, boys and girls? It is Jesus. Many shall be made righteous. Praise God. Just as the imputation of Adam's disobedience brings us death, the imputation of Christ's obedience to believers brings everlasting life. Romans 5.21 That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. For those of you who believe on Jesus Christ for salvation and all things, death is transformed, isn't it? And this is the beautiful thing. That's why Nancy Thornwell knew, I go to be with Christ, as Paul said, which is far better, because in the face of death, the believer has death transformed from an enemy into a friend who brings them into the presence of God. And so in the, uh, in the face of death to the believer, Jesus says to you, fear not, believe only. Because clothed with Christ's righteousness, his obedience, washed in his blood, your soul will on the day of your death come before God 
with Jesus Christ standing there as your advocate and your soul will enter heaven as he ushers you in into the blessed presence of God. There is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, for which we say, hallelujah. But still, that is not the believer's eternal state. Because on the day you die, your body will still be in the grave, even though your soul is in heaven above, and your body will be waiting until the resurrection day. That It is on that day when you will be made whole, body and soul reunited. And in our text, as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a foretaste here of what is to come. Jesus told Jairus, fear not, but believe only, and she shall be made whole. See, her soul and body are separated at death, but when she is raised, her soul and body will meet again, and she will be made whole. That's that word. So with that in mind, with some theology there behind it, let's return to our narrative. Jesus goes with Jairus and his wife into the house. He takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They'll be his eyewitnesses of the power he has over death. And inside the home, we find professional mourners. Verse 52, and all wept and bewailed her. In those days, it was customary to hire mourners to mourn over the deceased. And that these were professionals and not just family and friends is clear in Matthew's account. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, this kind of professional mourning, it would add greatly to the atmosphere of grief and misery. But this is something borrowed from Roman and Greek practice. This is a pagan practice, a pagan thing. And what it brings to you is a kind of heathenish hopelessness by way of this practice. But the Bible says to us, when a believer dies while we mourn, we don't mourn in this extravagant way, as though we mourn without hope. We mourn our earthly loss, but we are looking ever to the blessed hope of eternal life that they will enjoy in Christ. And so Jesus tells the mourners, Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. Will you look at their response? And you think of this, right? How much our Lord endured for our sake. And what do they do? They laughed him to scorn. They laughed him to scorn. Why is he here? Is he here for his own sake and his own amusement? He's here to serve sinners. And sinners laugh him to scorn. What a thing that is. They laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. The hired mourners become scorners. They laugh at him as though Jesus could not tell that the girl is dead. Though our Lord, of course, knows if one is dead or asleep. But what did Jesus mean then? That she is not dead, but sleepeth. Do you know, are you like the scorners? While her body was lifeless sleeping, her soul was alive to God, not dead. And in the Bible, this intermediate state where, where soul and body are separated for a time is called sleeping. The Jews ought to have known it from their Old Testament. Isaiah 57 verse 2 speaks of the righteous that die and says, He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds. The grave becomes like the bed. Peace in their souls. The grave like a bed for, that rests still united to Christ. And that's how the ancient church spoke of a believer's death. Their soul 
in the blessed presence of God, very much alive in God's presence with joy. But their body in the grave, still united to Christ, never to be lost, never to be forsaken, as though sleeping, awaiting for the resurrection day when soul and body are united. And for that reason, believer, you are never, you are never to fear death. Hebrews 2.15 says, Jesus has freed you from your bondage to what fear? The fear of death. You ought not ever fear death, believer. What did Paul exult in? He said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Where is the sting of death? Where is the grave's victory? Gone away in Christ. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. We mourn the believer's death, but do we wail inconsolably? No. We do not. Why? Because we look past death to the resurrection. When Jesus is going to return and raise our bodies from the dead, reuniting our soul and body, And I'll come back to what I had introduced to you earlier. You must have your eyes on the resurrection, friends. Not just entering glory as a soul, glorified, but as a glorified soul and body. Because on that day, you will be made whole in both soul and body. And you will take your place at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Precious thought, isn't it? That Nancy Thornwell's body will arise one day with a wedding gown. Now, that gown that she was buried in may be decayed. No matter, she will arise again with Christ's wedding ground on her, as all of us who believe on the Lord will. And her uh, uh, material wedding gown, so to speak, was just a sign of the faith that she had, that she will be wed to Christ wearing his righteousness. But all of us will be raised to newness of life wearing this wedding garment that Christ gives us. And all of us will be wed to the Lord Again, this was Job's comfort in his affliction. It was the resurrection to come. I won't cite it again. You have heard it. That in his uh, affliction, he knew his Redeemer, Jesus Christ, lives. And as Jesus was raised from the dead and is at God's right hand even now, he sees that he will have the same uh, bodily resurrection. Looking to the resurrection day is your hope, believer. Is your body perishing day by day? Yes. But it will be made immortal on the resurrection day. Praise God. Have you some malady today? It will be gone. Utterly so. Are you lame? You will walk. You will leap. You will skip. Are you blind? You will see. Are you mute? You will speak. Do you have birth defects of some sort? You will have them erased. All the worry... Lines on your face, beloved, will be gone. The stress and strain that you carry in both body and soul will be eliminated. Anxieties, cares, all sorrows will be forgotten on the resurrection day. They will be turned to laughter. They will be turned to joy as you see your Redeemer in the flesh. When those in Thessalonica mourn, and see this common theme through the scriptures, Paul told them what? Look to the resurrection. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. See, that's the sorrow of the professional mourner, having no hope outside of Christ. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that is, he was resurrected, 
Even so them also which sleep, here's that word again, sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or go before them which are uh, asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore what? Comfort one another with these words. This is where comfort is found, friends. First Thessalonians 4. In your affliction then, both Job and Paul direct you to think on your resurrection day where you will ever be the Lord's, both in soul and body. Think on that blessed day when you will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and you will ever be the Lord's. Think on that day, the day when you will finally, because you won't be able to do this as a mere soul in heaven, you will finally be able to touch your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, with your own hand and to embrace him for yourself. The day when you will see him with your own eyes, not just as a spiritual sense, as a soul in heaven, but to actually, as Job anticipated, to see him physically with your own eyes. And where you can embrace one another, each other, in perfect love and joy. That is a day to long for and think on in all the miseries of this world. I don't believe if you thought on that, that you would love this world so very much or cling to it very much at all. Not when you think on the joys that are coming. And so we are called to live in view of the resurrection. Well, I bled over into the final heading here. So let's conclude with that, resurrection. And so that we would have a foretaste of that blessed time that Christ can and will raise us from the dead. Verse 54 says, And he put them all out, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Maid, Arise. And he, he puts out all the professional mourners, not just, and yes, certainly for, in a sense, there's this truth. They were scorners, but it's not just that they are scorners. It's because when life came to her, there would be no more room in that place for mourning. There'd be no more room in that place for mourners, professional or otherwise, but only the gasp of its astonishment and joy. As it will be when we are raised, isn't it? What does the Bible promise? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Revelation 21. So he takes the girl by the hand, and you see how tender our Savior is to touch sinners. We've meditated on that before. And he commands her, made, Arise, or as you know it in Mark's gospel, Talitha Kumai. And with that word of his power, we read, Her spirit came again, and she arose, how long? Straight away. Straight away, immediately. There wasn't any time, it just happened immediately. And in that, you also see, Jesus, unlike the Old Testament prophets, didn't have to pray. He simply gave a word. He commands her. Just as he commanded the storm earlier in the chapter, he is God. And so your Savior in himself has life, doesn't he? And he has the power in himself to raise the dead. And she, though dead, could obey his voice and hear his voice. And she arose 
The dead can hear the voice of the master. You think of this even spiritually, right? The gospel comes in power to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, and they arise to newness of life. The first resurrection. And so that said, her rising is a picture of that last great day, the general resurrection. And hear what John five twenty five through 29 says on that. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Her rising is a token of that truth. But you heard of two resurrections there. And you have to ask, which one will you receive? Will you receive, like all believers, a resurrection of life, which is a gift to the undeserving, isn't it? The undeserving sinner. We're all sinners. And this is a gift that we receive by faith of everlasting life in a blessed resurrection of life to those in Christ. But the unbeliever will have a resurrection of damnation. There's a gruesome and well-earned, restless, eternal misery in a gruesome body in corruption, tormented for sin eternally. Uh, The Bible gives us just a glimpse of that, but it is an awful, awful reality to be raised in corruption. You know, all the horrible pictures and images we have of man's minds and images of such horrors don't come close to what that will be like. So what will you have? All you have to do is flee to Jesus and have the resurrection of life instead of that gruesome future unbeliever. Take Christ and have a resurrection of life. And if you are a believer, what is, what is it that testifies that you will be raised believer? It is because Jesus Christ was raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. There's that word again, slept. Why do we meet on the first day of the week? Why did God move the Sabbath day to the first day and not the seventh day? It is to celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was raised on the first day. And if the Christian Sabbath preaches anything to you, it is that you, believer, will never die. And you will have eternal rest and eternal life because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And if he is not raised from the dead, we are of all men most pitiable. But because he is raised from the dead, we commemorate on the first day of the week the resurrection hope. That's why this day is precious to us, because it preaches to us the life to come. Well, time is gone. I'll be brief with this last point. But Jesus has her eaten, verse 55. She was no phantasm. She truly and really had her body and soul made whole. In John 21 and Luke 24, you notice that Jesus dines with his disciples after his resurrection as well. 
showing he was resurrected in body as well as having a soul, body and soul made whole. Then in verse 56, we read, and her parents were astonished, and we'll, we'll end with this thought. You know, I was thinking, when the Lord makes us whole in that great day to come, I think no matter how much theology we know, how much we know of the doctrine, no much, how much we anticipate even what he will do out of the scriptures, when he works all things to make us whole, when we meet him and enter the eternal blessed state, we will be astonished. We will be astonished, friends. You will be greatly astonished with great joy when you see Jesus with your own eyes, in your own flesh. You'll be astonished on the day that sin is ripped away from you and you're no longer looking at your Savior as through a glass darkly. You'll be astonished. You'll be astonished what it's like when your mind is not clouded with sin, when your body has no more aches and pains, and when you can finally and truly be considered what a human ought to be if it were not for sin. All those things will astonish you in the experience of it, friends. Sinless, with a glorified body like His, able to embrace Christ and one another in perfect love and joy. And He that cannot lie promises you this. That day is coming. So that you would say even now, even so, come Lord Jesus, come make us whole. Amen. If able, please rise for prayer. Oh, our Father and our God, what a Savior you have given us in Jesus Christ, the God-man. We thank you for his love and compassion and power for sinners like us who deserve his power to be exercised in wrath and yet is exercised in mercy to those who fear not and believe only. Give us faith, Father, to believe in this Savior. If any here do not know him, may this be the day of belief and faith and love and trust and hope and rejoicing even for them. Bring them uh, from death to life. May they, through the preaching of the gospel, ears that were dead, may they hear the voice of the Savior saying, Arise, come to newness of life. And to those who believe, Father, we come with weak faith. We come as beggars with our hands held open, saying, Lord, we believe these precious things. Help thou our unbelief. Oh, Father, help us to live in view of eternity. Help us, Father, day by day, Say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Help us to live in view of eternity and have a heavenly conduct in this life. We thank you and bless you for the life to come. Help us to remember it always, especially on the first day of the week. We ask this all for the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us sing praise.